Welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, and we will be breaking down the latest health tech news from around the world. This week, we are delighted to be joined by Molly Gilmartin. Molly, welcome. How's your week been? It's been a great week, thanks. Um, it's great to be on here. I've followed the podcast for a long time, so excited to talk about the news this week. Awesome. James, Val, how have your weeks been? Busy. Both quite London-centric, considering we don't live in London. <laughs> Lots yeah, of I, I went to London three times this week, which <laughs> is fabulous. Saw some great people, but I am tired. I am tired. But it has been a good week. It's good to get out in person um, and see lots of lovely health tech faces so yeah fantastic i did a um nine hour round trip for our team day if you doubt my commitment to the course (laughs) (laughs) conversely james and i tried to cheat the train strikes and tube strikes and ended up on what should have been like a 45 minute drive taking like three hours essentially and james did that two days in a row so that was great i did yeah i didn't learn from the first day i just sort of uh did exactly the same journey, uh, exactly the same way, and got caught in exactly <laughs> the same traffic. So, like, yes, um, yeah. Iterate, James. <laughs> Pavlov's dogs learnt quicker than that. So like... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I realised I actually did Molly a real disservice there by not giving her the introduction that she deserves. Now, Molly is a doctor by training and she's joining us from Albion VC. And so there are lots of stories that we're really keen to hear from her on. So I think let's get cracking to our first story of the day. What else could it possibly be? SVB. So Molly, do you want to tell us a little bit about what has been going on over this last week? Yeah, so um, I think it was pretty reached major news by the weekend, but um, there was a challenge with the, with SVB, um, which has very much been resolved by HSB stepping in, um, which is great for the UK tech ecosystem and is certainly something that I think all startups, VCs are very, very happy about. Um, but it was a stressful weekend for startups who were really worried about potentially some or all of their capital. And um, I think... It really demonstrated how an ecosystem can come together, though, and there was a real opportunity for startups to support each other and VCs to support them, too. And I'm sure you guys played a role in that ecosystem play, too. So I think coming out of it, um, you know, everyone's really excited about the future. I think everyone's LinkedIn on Monday morning was just SVP. Yes. Yeah. I was following this over the weekend and in, in various different WhatsApp groups, um, hearing yeah, firsthand from founders just how horrible that weekend was because I guess the weekend is the worst time for this kind of thing to be happening banking because you just feel so helpless there's so little that you can do when people having made withdrawals and actually the money not yet appeared in alternative bank accounts and yeah it, it must have been pretty offensive James you gave a really good explanation in our team call on Monday when we were like what the hell has happened how did this happen can you just explain to us a little bit about where this came from and how we got to where we were by the end of the day on Friday last week. <laughs> well, I'm no, I'm no uh, banking economics expert, but um, what I, th- my understanding from what I've read of what happened is essentially a bank takes loads of money. You deposit loads of money in the bank. The bank then looks after that money. It will do things with that money. 
to try and make more money. If those things don't work, um, there is then not a lot of money. The bank's going to try and assume that only some people are going to want to hold their cash in their hand. And so you've got this assumption that you can play around with a certain percentage of that money, knowing that nobody's going to call it in. But there's this really interesting spiral that starts happening when the bank has put loads of money in different places to try and grow that money. Um, if that doesn't look like it's growing, people can panic and people can think, oh, I'm going to take my money out of this. And then as soon as that starts, one person does it, two people do it, a thousand people do it, a million people do it. All of a sudden, the banks actually put all of their money in other places. So they can't actually give you that money and therefore you get a bit of a crisis so that is my understanding of what has happened here and i think the important thing on that though is it's sentiment driven you know it's a lot of it a lot of the panic happened because everybody is super connected in this ecosystem as well yeah. and so that spread um and i think you know that that sentiment it really demonstrates how the high growth that's happened over the last couple of years in tech you know that that led to a lot of the challenge you're describing, and so SVB was an um, you know really key player in the ecosystem for supporting these startups, many of which couldn't actually get business bank accounts with other traditional banks. Mm. So SVB were there as an opportunity, and then the growth led to then this challenge, you know, combined with the macroeconomic environment and rising interest rates. So it's you know again also as a medic like you, James, not an economist by trade, but it is interesting to see sentiment and trust is so important in healthcare and that applies actually to lots of other sectors too and the sentiment and trust piece here you know it's great HSBC has stepped in as such a large and trusted bank now I think it's given a lot of reassurance but it it really demonstrated the importance of sentiment and trust didn't it yeah it did 100% because actually my, again my understanding of this is that what I described about the bank's going to assume that only some of you want to take your money out and they're going to legitimately do loads of stuff with the rest. My understanding is that it was actually the US side that it wasn't working the other things that they were doing that then caused this panic. But then over in the UK, they were legitimately and happily and business model positively doing things with the money in the right way. But so many people wanted to withdraw their money above normal that it was to your point, yeah, the sentiment that actually just crashed the UK side of things. Um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it's it's it, a heck of a weekend for those for those founders. I think one of the things I guess my point on it is that, like, as an entrepreneur, you kind of you kind of got enough to worry about <laughs> without your bank going down. Like there are these there are these certain things that I think experience plays into. Um, as an entrepreneur and as just a human being that gets to a certain age that's gone through a few cycles of these things like you may have lived through 2008 as an entrepreneur you may have lived through, like there are these things that you've gone through as an entrepreneur that gives you this like thicker skin or maybe that extra bit of caution and things like that I think this again is just another thing that our generations have to deal with <laughs> certainly our generation of entrepreneurs that had a bank account in Silicon Valley and, and this and this assumption that there are just these things that work, like putting your money in a bank and then being able to take that money out at some point because it's yours, you just kind of take for granted as like of all the th things like hiring and customer and marketing and like all these things, problems that you're trying to solve day to day, like throwing like the the, the bank in, you're just like oh my goodness. But yes, for HSBC to come in and essentially solve the problem and for all that to happen so quickly 
I think is incredible because again, what you don't want happening is then further mistrust other banks, people, other people starting to question other banks, more people trying to withdraw their money from those. And then the same thing kicks on and starts happening. So, you know, so I think, yeah, I, I think incredible for our space because I'll be honest, like by the time it had like happened and then been fixed, like I, I was a little bit oblivious to it until it was fixed. <laughs> I was kind of like, cool. Okay. Um, not storming a teacup, but at least it's been fixed. It also shows the importance of communication because actually with, you know, our portfolio companies and SVB mm. to companies and to uh, VCs, you know, communication in these crises is so important. And actually, to your point, like the operationalization of the crisis management, a lot of it actually revolves around communication. So mm. I think um, that's another massive learning that comes out of this is, is over communication is so important at this time. Mm. I think one of the other really positive things that that I saw, certainly one of the things I saw being talked about and framed very positively as well was um, the involvement from the UK government without it resulting in a bailout from the UK government. I think lots of founders saw that as a real testament to how valued the life sciences, healthcare, startup sector is to the UK economy and therefore the government. And that finally being recognized in many ways um, and then ending up with that great result that ultimately, you know, it was HSBC that have taken over rather than it requiring that that government bailout that I think everyone was was very fearful of. Um, so I think that people took quite a lot of encouragement from that as well. Um, and then I know obviously we've had the budget coming out this week and there's been further talk about tax credits and all of that kind of thing for R&D. But um, I think, you know, I guess it's a, a sector that feels perhaps like its value is starting to be recognized um, by the people who are putting policies in place and are ultimately responsible for the economy as well. This story is brought to us by Fierce Biotech and is asking the question, why do so many biotechs face being kicked off the NASDAQ? Belle, what's going on here? Yeah, so um, a nice article from Fierce Biotech this week um, in which I had a little lesson in what the stock market is. Um, Molly, I'm sure you can give far more insightful analysis. Um, but yeah, it seems that the NASDAQ um, are going on a bit of a rampage. So it's been warning lots of biotech developers and pharma companies that they could be delisted from the stock market, which happens when a company's share price remains below $1 for a period of time. Um, now, over the past year, and this is based in many ways as to sort of high valuations in the preceding years, but only a fifth of the 532 kind of small companies ended up in positive territory at the end of the year. And so 64 were warned of impending delisting in quarter four alone. And that's nearly as many as quarter one through three in 2022. So a huge number. Now, according to the people quoted in the article, this is really showing the importance of timing. So what happened here is these companies potentially just went public way too early. So got listed sometimes up to two years out from their next or newest drug application, meaning that investors in the company are left with this sort of dilemma. Do they leave their money in a company that's potentially not going to be profitable for two years? Or do they move it around a little bit in the short term to sort of increase their likelihood of high returns? Um, now, the article talks about a few different ways that people can pull themselves out of this dangerous territory. So they talk about reverse stock split, which 
it's something learning point for anyone who's interested <laughs> where a company sort of boosts its share point by reducing its current shares so it might say we're going to turn every two shares into one or something like that um but i think really importantly and actually this was talked about on the previous point about svb as well it really highlights the importance of clear communication to both existing and new investors. So I think as long as companies can really be clear about where they're at and what they need, we're going to see sort of a better, well, better outcomes here. Now, my favorite comment in this article, um, and I'll quote it, is no biotech ever really dies from dilution. They die from a lack of funding. So basically, as long as these companies can just keep their name in the game and ensure they have enough money to get them through the next quarter, the next sprint, the next year, they can continue along the road of producing the innovative therapies that kind of ultimately will massively impact patients' lives. So it's an interesting one. Like, it sounds really scary, but at the same time, I feel like it's actually not that impactful at all, really, as long as companies can just sort of hang on in there and get themselves to that point where they're going to be producing those great therapies that will then lead to profit. So that is my view. What do you think, Molly, as someone who speaks the language of finance? And I mean, I had a five second or a five minute <laughs> lesson in it this morning. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting when you compare sort of early stage startups, which are the ones that we all work with a lot compared to kind of your public companies and to the communication game is really different. Um, there's a lot more time for sort of ad hoc problem solving at board level whenever you're a private small startup. And, you know, it's it's a very different game whenever you are having to communicate that message to all of your shareholders. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of communication. I think it does play out here, too. Um, and, you know, some of my colleagues on the UCL Tech Fund side at Albion um, are definitely the ones to talk to about this because they understand it you know, super well um, on the biotech side because the challenge with some of these companies is the stuff they're doing is really complex as well. Um, and it's it, it, what I always have enjoyed about digital health is because everyone's a patient. When you can put it in patient-centric language, people can understand what the company's doing. When you get very complex um, targets and, and what the biotech companies are working on, the communication isn't just about the financial stuff. It's actually about what what you're doing, how that's going to help people and what the impact's going to be on the market. And it can take a long time. So with biotech investments is another challenge is that these things can take take a while. And so all that communication is really, really important. And when you're doing it in a public space, it's very different to very like having an experienced board who all totally get what you're doing. So it, it, it's a different challenge. And the sums of money are so much bigger as well. Like we often say biotech is just health tech's more expensive big sister because it's just the sheer sums are massive and they do take a long time and they are complicated. But ultimately, without that, we you can't be hopeful of building those really, really impactful technologies for patients or medicines. Brilliant. Okay, on to story number three. Our next story is brought to us from Maddie Ness and it is a guest editorial from founder of Proximy and co-managing partner of KHP Ventures, Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram. Now, she is talking here about her experience of basically breaking the US, taking health tech companies over to the US with 
for example, Proximy. And I know also recently as part of KHP Ventures and the work that they're doing with their portfolio companies, they've gone over to work with Cedar Sinai on a week-long bootcamp program to help some of the companies they work with to really understand the US market. We know that breaking the US is the holy grail for so many digital health companies all around the world, not just here in the UK. So Molly, I'm going to come to you on this one. Tell us a little bit more. Why is it such a holy grail for digital health companies and I guess lots of startups? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting when seeing a lot of very early stage companies that have started in the UK, often the last slide of the pitch deck is, you know, the next, (laughs) next market will definitely be US. And the reason for that often is actually language, because obviously in healthcare, a lot of the time we're engaging with patients and the fact that the, there isn't um, sort of the development challenge of language means that US is sort of top priority in one level because it's easiest with the product. But actually, the second is, of course, the market in the US is just huge. And so if you wanted to scale European geographies, you may need to get two or three, maybe even more. Um, and we've got some of our portfolio companies like Oviva that have, have scaled, I think, four geographies now with their, their product. But then at the same point in the US, if you can capture the US, that's just you, you will achieve exactly the, the market size you need essentially for your product. Now, challenges is obviously US healthcare market is super complex. And actually, while it's a little bit like saying European healthcare at times, because there's a lot of state variation depending on what your product does. And I think sometimes that complexity, even at a product market fit level, which is sort of the classic term that you'll hear in VC, but does your product actually fit that market? And that requires a lot of analysis of the different stakeholders. You know, you're moving to a provider. Is it the payer? The patients behave very differently based on how their health plans work. And then the reimbursement mechanisms, which are super complex until you get into it. Even understanding all of the different existing codes, the process for generating a new code and lobbying for that. And it takes loads of time. And then you've got all the regulatory and legal stuff. You know, even if you have, if your product has any, prescription element you know you need to be licensed in the state you're doing that and there's lots of ways that that sort of your telehealth companies have have worked around this but there's almost the stuff you can google there's the stuff you can get a little deeper than google and then there's the stuff of actually going out and doing it and realizing that there's always going to be blockers and so I think there's a point here about like preparation is key which is where these sorts of book camps and even articles like this one that Nadine's written are so helpful to startups because they start to give them a framework when they're in that discovery process but you also need to be super well capitalized here. Like you need to have funding to be able to have extra time because you're always going to come across um, roadblockers essentially, and and that's normal. And I think sometimes that complexity is not always recognized by early stage startups. Um, and the, the big one actually is also the talent piece because actually you know talent is super expensive in the US. So that links to the capital point because if you want people that are really experienced and have done this time and time again. Health tech is still, you know, it's it's building, obviously, but it's still relatively nascent compared to some other tech sectors. And so your top operators in some of these verticals are expensive. And I think it's, it's a really key thing. It's interesting. I'm actually working. We've got a, an extern who I think actually spent some time with Somex. Uh, Baz, I don't know if you, oh, he's yeah. at Harvard at the minute doing yeah, a fellowship. Yeah, yeah, Harvard from us. Um, yeah. So he, yeah, he's spending a month with us as part of his externship during this fellowship. And we're working mm. on a playbook for... UK tech health tech companies that want to scale the US. So maybe we'll have to come back to Somex and report back once we finish some more of that research. Yeah, he needs to come full circle after that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we're, so yeah. So, um, but it's a massive, massive open question is like, how do we accelerate this? How do we support in that discovery? 
And there's a responsibility for VCs too, you know, how do we share the learnings of our different portfolio companies that have scaled in the US and help speed up that process? Because it's a huge opportunity if you can crack it. It is. I've got a question around timing um, because I was having this conversation Mm. with someone the other day around when should a startup think about and then practically go about going to the US? And the the argument was, well, you should be thinking about it from day one. Another argument was, what's the point unless you've proved that it works in one geography before thinking about the next counterpoint? But if you if you haven't got a possible business model in the US, then why prove that it works in the UK? So there was a lot of conversation around this, basically. And it might be horses for courses, but I wondered what your thought was. Do you expect at the seed stage people to have a US strategy, at least in part? Do you want people thinking about it at that point? Do you want them to actually retain focus in their current geography before even thinking about it? I mean, how, how do you how do you perceive that? I think it's a really good question. And it comes to your point about when you're talking about SVB, about there's so much for entrepreneurs to think about. And if you're CEO, CEO <laughs> of a business, you know, focus is really important to get stuff across the line. And actually, when, when doing the US scaling point, some of the companies that have had the most success is where the CEO and some of the early founding team have just relocated there and have completely immersed themselves in the space to understand it. Yeah. And, you know, you can't be in two places at once. We haven't got the tech to do that just yet. Um, <laughs> and so I think the focus point is, um, is really important. At the same point, a lot of the success for product, if your product works, like if you think, if, if you've got product market fit in theory in the US, i.e. there's not a major competitor that's already doing it and mark an entry is going to be super hard, then I think understanding how your go-to-market is going to work, if you can do that discovery piece by speaking to some experts, having good board members, et cetera, I think that can be really helpful in an early, early stage to work on even if the US should be on your priority list. Um so I think understanding and, and knowing your how it links in with existing reimbursement, et cetera, if you can do that research, it's helpful. But I don't think, I would be very surprised if any VC would say they'd expect a seed company to already have a fully mm. built out US um, expansion strategy. And I think there is an important point about, you know, at seed level, the product often doesn't even have product market fit in their initial geography. And I think right. really understanding how do you make your product a must-have product for the need you're doing you have to focus on that and maybe if you work out that the market in the US is so much greater then you should just start there um but at the same point some of the most amazing innovations have come out of the fact that the NHS is really open to innovation and you Mm -hmm. can get really good pilots etc US is a lot more commercial in how it thinks about some of those things and and will have much greater there, there won't be I think as much of the partnership that we've seen in the NHS for early stage innovation um which is something that I just absolutely love about UK health tech I like that. And I like the clear, actionable advice there of focus. Actually, prove that it works in one place first with, I suppose, a knowledge that it could and it might it gets, it might get over there at some point. That's fine. But actually, when the time comes, just relocate and focus again. Immerse yourself in it. Understand the problem. Understand the whole ecosystem. Understand how that problem might actually get solved and fit in and literally just focus on it and dedicate to it and f- figure out the way. And I think I like that because actually you're right. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to try and do two things at the same time. It's so easy to uh, then 
half-assed both and actually get nothing done like and times that by a hundred with all the different things that you could have on your mind about you know and it's an interesting one actually when you when you do get product market fit you then do have the burden of opportunity in that there are lots of things that Mm. could be done that are all relatively valuable and actually i think the focus to crack the us is obviously the big one with the biggest opportunity but you there's going to be an element of sacrifice there i think about your uk scale or your european scale or there's going to be sacrifice for what you do with something else somewhere and actually it's about coming to terms with that as well and i think that's something that i'm certainly on on a bit of a journey of myself of figuring out you know well not even figuring out but I guess coming to terms with when you do have the burden of opportunity, give yourself a break and actually just pick something. Yeah, but I mean that's where I think um, expert networks and sort of the, the founders should be looking to their investors and saying, "Who in your network can I speak to?" Because if you can get someone that can help you assess that and problem solve it, it's really helpful rather than mm-hmm. taking it all on yourself. And I think that's something that Albion VC we've been really building at the same point as this playbook is like how do we get our network together so that if a company wants to go there we can actually support them in that problem solving discovery piece with the top people um because none of us are experts in everything right and i think similarly when you talk about product market fit it's also super interesting in healthcare and we've talked about this at length james before but you see (laughs) so much problem solution fit so people have a problem and someone builds a solution for it. And it's, you know, yeah, it really solves that problem. But product market fit means someone is then paying for it and reimbursing it. And that is the bit that I think in healthcare is really tough because there are loads of problems, um, but not necessarily solutions that people are willing to pay for to solve those problems. I think it's really important to get that nuance. Could not agree more. I think that's also harder to find in the UK because it's much harder to get commercial traction in a public sector NHS market than it is in a US commercially driven market. And that's not to say that breaking the US is easy. I'm not saying that at all. But I think for founders, sometimes that's not always crystal clear in when when they're considering how to tackle the UK market, for example, and really, as you say, Molly, get that full product market fit as opposed to the product solution fit because the the, the funding yeah. models are so complex but also so challenging you know they're they're vulnerable to dropping out at the last minute they're unreliable um it, it's it's really tough to re- really truly achieve that and I guess also what I would be saying there is that actually if you are able to achieve it in that kind of environment that stands you in pretty good stead for when you do go to a more commercially focused market where actually people there are more people willing to pay for stuff I guess yeah but also the incentives you you have to then go back to kind of mapping out the operational processes which again James we've talked about before like it's really fun to think about Lego hospital you know how actually does flow happen and when thinking about care and provider tech and those sorts of buckets, understanding the flows and where the money flows as well as the patients with that, it's actually quite different sometimes in the US. So it's like certain triage tools in the UK don't make complete, they, they don't necessarily have the same value proposition and business case. But then in the US, if it's actually navigating care differently, it's got a big cost saving. And so understanding the flows and mapping that out with experts is really, really valuable. But also this is where the ICS strategy is really interesting because Integrated care systems, you know, that's your kind of ACOs, et cetera, in the US. And so if you get ICS success in the UK, you are making 
a population health business case in some way, which then does does potentially flow into the US around value-based healthcare, you know, in a, in, in a more transferable way than maybe some of the previous models that we've had in the, in the UK. So let's see what happens, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited by it. Got some positivity on a Friday, you know? Yeah, we love it. <laughs> we love it. Okay. So story number four says that the UK is becoming the Silicon Valley of Europe's healthcare sector, which is interesting language, not three days off the back of an almost collapse of SVB. But Investment Monitor asked the question, why investors should pay pay close attention to the UK's health tech sector this year? So Molly, coming back to you, feels like we should come straight to the person in the know on this one. What's this telling us? Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously, I'm a VC completely focused on healthcare in the UK. So I um, I absolutely love this article. And I thought it hit on some really important points. You know, firstly, healthcare is quite broken globally because it's not really delivering excellently for the patients, nor for the staff that are working for it, as we've seen this week. Um, and nor is it actually for those paying for it. So tech is a real, real opportunity for this. And um. It also, the article mentioned COVID and that opportunity that it has demonstrated. So yes, it's exacerbated a lot of the problems from capacity perspective, but it's also shown how much adoption of tech we can have in healthcare and how it can really help deliver healthcare in a more efficient and effective way. So we're sort of set up for like a really great platform coming out of COVID for tech adoption. So then if you look at other industries, you know, the, the pitch ultimately for health tech is that if you, if you look at digital adoption in advertising, huge, retail, less so, but still significantly ahead of healthcare. And if you look at digital adoption and and apply some of that transferability to healthcare, the potential for value creation is absolutely vast. Um, And so I think that software came to eat the world. You know, that phrase, we've seen that graph. You know, part of that was because compute power got a lot cheaper, right? So it was much easier to build these quite complex tech systems and scale them. And if you apply to healthcare, I mean, you could look at an example would be something like whole genome sequencing. You know, the cost of that's reducing exponentially. So as costs for these really complex technologies reduce, the opportunity to then build scalable solutions is huge. And so software came to eat the world and maybe healthcare is next. That's that's what we hope. And I think it's the next few years is a real opportunity actually coming out of COVID where we've accelerated a lot of adoption. And obviously in tech, as we all know, you know, building a great product that solves problems can be easier than actually getting adopted by those that need to use it, whether it's healthcare professionals or patients. And I think that adoption curve is going to really drive great growth for some of our health tech companies that are early stage now. So definitely a massive fan. And I think what's brilliant also is we've seen over COVID a lot of generalist VCs now look to health tech for opportunities. So it used to be that you maybe had your kind of healthcare IT and digital health specialist funds. And now most VCs are looking, they have somebody focusing on healthcare, health tech, and that's great. Lots of capital. I think the important thing is to make sure that you get the right experts. Like I keep bringing it back to this, but I think, you know, healthcare is really complex in all geographies and we know that. And I think having the right people giving you advice to help you scale that growth commercially is also really important. So yeah, really exciting time. So what do you think, what do you really think about generalist investors doing health tech? Because 
we saw the COVID bubble, right? And we saw a lot of people direct, a lot of funds, a lot of individuals direct their resources towards healthcare, which caused a bit of a bubble. Uh, a lot of people did get funding. There was a lot of capital, which is great. I do agree. A lot of capital is great. But I think where that leads to lots of investment that then doesn't go anywhere, actually that can cause a bit of, well, digital health isn't actually that great. Look at all these companies that are failing. And I've seen a little bit of commentary about that recently. There's been a few health tech events where lots of stuff's been going on, but I think there've been a few kind of commentary articles about, oh, we're not sure about the future of digital health here. There's lots of stuff going on. There's lots of noise, but where are the exits? Where are the big problems being solved? Like, are we really any further along than we were five years ago? So I just wonder that when you trace that back to the funding and, and the people, therefore, in the market with a product that they've had capital to develop that's then, you know, causing a bit of this noise perhaps or not as focused because again like it's super nuanced there's loads of things in healthcare blah blah but i don't know whether that's that that's just an opinion for the sake of it to be honest whether i'm just saying that to like make this conversation bit interesting or whether or not there's any there's anything in that because why would there be specific health tech funds and investors if it weren't so difficult um so can the generalist investors that have a couple of people really do the same commercial viability checking as a health tech fund that's done it for a decade? I don't know. Or is on fund two, three, four, five of doing it in health tech and biotech, you know, just a thought to ponder. No, I, I think we should ponder. I think obviously, you know, Albion BC is B2B SaaS and health, health tech. And I think what's quite interesting is you do see intersections of healthcare. So Pepe is a great example of a company yeah. that's selling, you know, to employers, to enterprise customers. So the sometimes actually that generalist view is so helpful to look at, okay, what do good SaaS metrics look like um, when you're looking at enterprise customers? And so whilst that, it would be very easy to say, of course, health tech only investors are the best. Um, I think <laughs> it's really important to recognize that sometimes it may, it, you know, being a generalist is celebrated in the world often because you think about things in a different way and you can bring that perspective That's to fair. your founders who are completely in the weeds of the the challenge and you can bring some of that structure to the problem solving. At the same point, I think your point about loads of capital going into these companies, I think I like to refer to this as the hype reality gap. So when you see a TechCrunch article or whatever saying company raised at 100 million valuation, you know, that probably happened quite a few months ago because the announcement always mm. is a bit delayed. And it it's a it's a point in time that doesn't demonstrate any of the operational stuff we've talked about today. You know, it doesn't show, it doesn't necessarily tell the story about that growth. It's a one-off snapshot. And the risk about that is it's seen as the more the, the higher the valuation, the more successful and more opportunity there is in this company. That's kind of the proxy that people take. So what the challenge that can come out of that is if you raise it too high a valuation as a startup, you have to grow into that valuation or your revenue multiples have to meet that. And so rushing for the valuation that will look great in that article, but actually maybe isn't doing the full analysis of what is the market size, what actually is an, a, 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 a sort of realistic amount of that market I can capture and therefore what valuation could I one day be? And I think it's really important to like to just be real about it. 
and worry less about what it looks like. And I think sometimes the health tech investors can be a bit meaner in commas on pricing when it comes to a round. But actually, it's because they understand the dynamics and they want you to be able to, you know, build to your series B and you have to give yourself room for growth. And I think that's something, you know, you know that I was in startups before being in VC. Mm. And I think when in the startups, you know, it can be very easy to get very excited about those high price point, you know, valuations and actually stay in the reality. You know, that would be my advice to founders. Like think about your day to day. Who are the next customers? What's your revenue targets for the next six months? And some of these points are, you know, you don't want to be super diluted as a founder, but you also don't want to have a valuation that's going to be super hard to grow into. And I think that's the discipline that I think generous investors in today's market are definitely doing more, but in a sort of hype market, that that's the challenge sometimes because this is not, the healthcare doesn't necessarily have the same market size and specific verticals as some B2B SaaS mm-hmm. companies, for example. And it's okay yeah. to recognize that you can still absolutely crash it and build a really successful company. Yeah. Um. So I think it's like, I try and be positive realism. That's kind of my motto. And I think um, I think that's what's necessary here. But I think it's a good point, James. And podcasts like this are great for educating all of us investors in the world too. So. Well, I'll tell you what, I just got educated there because actually I think one, one really actionable bit of learning there, I think for people founding startups and raising investment is if you're thinking about the benefit to you as the founder, I think it's very easy to just go down the route of I want to get the highest valuation possible because what's the downside? I give I get the most money for giving away the least amount of my company. Mm -hmm. Surely that is amazing because I've done a great deal there. I've given away hardly anything. I've still got 90% equity in my company and I've got 100 million to play with. Like that's fantastic. Whereas you've just explored that actually there's a separate reality there that you need to consider, which is if you do not then grow at the pace to realize that valuation before your next round, well, let's play that out. You have to do a down round. How does a down round look to your growth? Well, actually not great, especially if you've done that in a pretty good economic climate, you just haven't managed to make the most of it you know down rounds can be certainly forgiven in times like this but actually if you've done that at a, at a great time then uh. so i think that's a really good, just good point to raise there for, for people listening that might want to start companies or raise money that actually it's not necessarily about giving away the least for the most it's actually about a sensible valuation that you can grow into with the metrics that you want to hit appropriately to then raise your valuation at the next round i think that's a a, a thing to think about when you look at your cap table and you look about and you look at what rounds you're going to do and what your dilution looks like at the end actually you can maybe move that first figure a little bit for a better figure at the end i think that's a really interesting thing to play with so really like that i also think it matches this point about, you know, use your investors. So use them to get your network. So make sure that you're engaging and maximizing that opportunity, but also talk to VCs early. You know, I love talking to early stage companies that even are too early for Albion so that we can have a chat about what do those metrics look like? What are those goalposts that you should be aiming for? And if you have those conversations before you're in top fundraising mode, you're building relationships, but also you're getting that feedback when it's not in the deal moment. And I think that's really important. So I think this like, partnership approach which we're really seeing in the uk health tech ecosystem which is brilliant and i think i'm really open to that because it makes it easier for everyone 
conversations we often have with founders and, and people in the space is, it, it echoes exactly what you've just said, said there in that if you're only going out to have conversations with investors when you want to raise, you're 12 months too late to be having those conversations. Investment is about relationships. It's about telling a story. I don't mean lying with telling a story, but it's about telling a story, telling a story of who you are and what your company is doing and the big vision and and really grounding that with the investors so that when you are coming to the table with an investment proposition, a pitch, everyone already knows who you are. Everyone already understands what you're shooting for. Um, and I think that's something that we frequently see founders maybe missing the mark on is that, you know, they're so focused on on the business itself that they they don't quite come up and take a breath to realize that just because you're not going to be raising for another 12 or six months doesn't mean you shouldn't be having those conversations right now um and i actually have a question so obviously we know that the investment market is really challenging at the moment and talking to both sides of the table investors and founders as well we're hearing that increasingly there's this push towards being revenue generating um and profitability more than there ever has been and that you know even at series a looking at revenue of minimum sounds like a million in a year um do you think that there is a difference in i guess though that criteria between your specialist funds and you were saying earlier there that perhaps health tech specific funds may be a little bit more challenging and and harder on on companies and founders than generalists. Do you think there's a difference between those specialists and generalists in terms of that criteria? Yeah, I think at times there there it is in that it also links to your portfolio and experience. So Albion have quite a few um, portfolio companies in the tech-enabled care space, so Viva, Helios, Nouveauair. Um, so we really understand things like evolving gross margins. Um, and if you have a service element to what you're doing, you, your gross margin isn't going to be 90%, right? And Or 80%. And it'll change over time. And so if you've got funds that understand that and have experience of it and can give help with that, um, I think that is really important. So it's not just about profitability and revenue. It's also about um, unit economics, gross margins, understanding what's the track, like how is this tracking? And it's the evolution and journey, not just the one-off metrics. And I think that's a really important piece. Again, another reason to engage with VCs over time because they can give you advice and you can say, they can say, we actually only do software. We don't do anything that has a service component or we don't like hardware. Like find, get to know quickly. And then you have a couple that you're working with really closely. Um, but I think giving generalist metric targets, even revenue targets, it doesn't give, it's not fair to really, the fact that every business is different and doing really specific things. And you have to understand that business really deeply before you can be giving loads of advice about metrics. Yes, there are some like high level SaaS metrics everyone's looking at, but I do think you have to understand the business and it comes back to that sort of longitudinal relationship with a VC and understanding your business. Mm, that's such good advice. I think we can finish there for today. It's been an investment finance heavy week, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Molly, for joining us. Before we go, tell us a little bit about what, what you're working on. What's getting you excited at the moment? What's coming up in the next couple of the month of months that you've got your eye on? Yeah, so as I said, we're working on this US playbook, which is key. So if anyone would like to talk about that, please do get in touch. And then, you know, always looking for early stage health tech companies and really happy to have that longitudinal relationship with lots of you. So, um, yeah, so late seed to series B is Albion's time period, but happy to, to speak to founders at any point in that that journey or a bit before. Um, 
I'm really interested in tech-enabled care. I'm really interested in the verticals that, you know, we saw um, Hera that won the pitch fest. That was another of the news articles. And, you know, it's another example of where MDT care, I mean, James, doctor, you'll know, it's so valuable and sometimes not easily delivered in complex patient pathways. And these products that sit sort of agnostic to healthcare systems and geographies that can deliver that MDT approach, I find really interesting. I've also got really nerdy on DSI, decentralized science, and you know the incentives <laughs> that that can bring around research and yes. patient care as well. So sharing data, how do we get all the stakeholders together? Will DSI be the answer? Who knows? But if you're building something in that space, I'm nerding up on it at the minute, so would love to chat. Um, so yeah, but I'm always open. I, I love talking to founders, and it's been such a joy to talk to you about all these topics today because it really gets my brain thinking in different ways too. And conversations are great for that makes you think about the world differently thanks so much molly it's been an education for sure well thank you to all our listeners and see you next week 